Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Growing up, I loved sports. I still love sports, but man, I was small as a kid. I was really short, really skinny, so I couldn't play my favorite sport, which was football. Uh, I, so I really enjoyed basketball. I had a basket, uh, a goal on my driveway, so every day after school, first thing I'd do, I'd put my backpack down, and I'd get my ball, and I'd go outside and shoot hoops. And like every kid, I always pretended that it was the last few seconds of the game, it was the championship, and of course, I had the ball, and I'm dribbling, right, and I see the goal, and it's three, two, one, I set my feet, I pull up my jump shot, I let it fly, and everything's slow motion. It's like a movie, right? You've seen it where the ball's spinning, the crowd, <gasps> the buzzer sounds, the ball's going straight for the hoop, and it hits the rim, bounces right out. Yeah, that's, uh, that's why I'm not in the NBA today. That was my basketball experience. But, you know, we, we love to dream about that moment in sports, Right? When a player gets to be the hero and, and make that last second play and win the game, it's so exciting. And we see that same theme in a lot of great movies and stories where things in the story seem to be at their absolute worst. And then out of nowhere, the hero comes back and saves the day. I think about Gandalf coming back in the Lord of the Rings. Any Lord of the Rings fans? I'll pray for the rest of you. No. Uh, we think about Batman returning to Gotham City or the end of, uh, end of Avengers Endgame or all the Marvel Universe defeats Thanos. Like It's this moment of triumph and relief because you know help has arrived and all will be made right again. We love that. We love that thrilling finish, that last second victory. And today as we move towards the end of the book of Revelation, we're going to see the ultimate victory from a returning hero. We're going to see the ultimate thrilling finish, except this finish is not the end of some game or movie. It's the end of human history itself. And this great moment of victory is much bigger than saving a team or a city. It's the Savior of the world finishing what he started at the cross and saving his people forever. I'm talking, of course, about the return of Jesus Christ. That return is the central focus of Christian hope. It is the moment that we as a church look to and long for. It is the big finish of God's whole plan of salvation. And let me tell you, after all the craziness we have seen in this book, I am so glad to finally be at this moment, <laughs> this morning. But first, as I've attempted to do all along, it's important that we do not miss the context. Context is so important when we study Scripture. So what is the context of Revelation? Well, I hope you know by now, I've only said it about 300 times, but Revelation is, it's actually, it's a revelation from Jesus to John for the church, originally given to seven first century churches who were struggling and facing persecution from the Roman Empire. And John wrote to them to give them this one big message. Do you remember it? He said, fear not, Jesus is on his throne. But John's message was not all daisies and roses, was it? Along the way, he's shown the church that things are going to get worse before they get better. Satan is going to attack the church. We saw that in the Antichrist. God is going to pour out his judgment. We saw that with the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls. Just a, a little uh, funny aside here. I'm so thankful for Jeremy. He was reading through my sermon manuscript. We send it in about four weeks ahead, and he read that line. 
and I had accidentally written the seven seals, trumpets, and bowels. And that is not at all what it was. So I'm really glad he helped me. Thank you, Jeremy, because that would have been embarrassing. But we saw that. We saw that Babylon's going to fall, that chaos is going to descend. But throughout all of it, John has encouraged the church to keep going. And we've seen that God's going to seal his people and protect them. And we see the witness that we're going to have in the end times. But the biggest way that John encourages the church to endure is by pointing them to what's still to come. And what's still to come is Jesus. The king of the universe will not leave his people in this mess, but he's coming back. And what a day. What a day that will be. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's walk through our text. And as we do, I want to give you three roles that we see King Jesus fulfill at his return. So look with me at Revelation chapter 19. Let's do verses 6 through 10 first. It's Apostle John. He writes, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, so in this first section, John hears this multitude praising God, and here's why they're praising. Verse 7, look, it tells us it's because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So here's the first role that we see King Jesus fulfilled, his return. It's this, number one, King Jesus, the groom. We have here a picture of Jesus preparing to marry his bride. And who is his bride? Well, that's us. The New Testament tells us that the church is the bride of Christ. But I remember as a kid thinking that that's, that's kind of weird. Like, I'm going to be married to Jesus, especially it was concerning as a, as a guy. But eventually I learned that there's no reason to be concerned. We're not marrying Jesus in a romantic kind of way, but rather this imagery of marriage is a picture of our relationship with Jesus. It's a symbol of our being joined together with him. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 5 that our earthly marriages are pictures of the gospel. This idea of Jesus' groom also demonstrates his love for us. And it's not a romantic, fuzzy, feely kind of love. It's a covenant, commitment kind of love. I remember when I married my wife. We'll be married seven years this July. She's been very gracious to stay with me. No, um, but seven years, and I remember the day we got married, we, we stood at the altar facing in each other's eyes, holding hands, and we said these really serious words. I mean, we made these serious commitments in sickness and in health, and even if your husband becomes a poor youth pastor, you know, whatever comes our way, right? Saying your vows is all about making a formal commitment. The language even sounds kind of contractual, and it's meant to be that way. 
Because marriage is a binding agreement to be faithful, to love one another until death do you part. And that is one of the ways that Jesus wants us to understand our relationship with him. Before the world was even created, he he set his love on us. He came to the earth to redeem us, dying on the cross, demonstrating his devotion. And he said that he will never leave or forsake us. And one day he will come back. He will return for his bride so we can be with him forever. This imagery had even more meaning in the New Testament times. In in Jewish culture, there were certain steps to a marriage. The first step, a man and woman would make a commitment to one another, and they would enter a season of betrothal, which was similar to our engagement. Then on the wedding day, the groom and his men would actually have this procession to the bride's house. And they would get the bride and her maidens, and then they would have a procession back to the groom's house where they would have a huge wedding feast that could last up to seven days. It was a huge celebration. In the same way, Jesus is coming for his people to take us to our own wedding feast. In verse 9, the angel calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a picture of the celebration and rejoicing that we are with Jesus forever, our groom. And in response to this incredible scene, John just falls down and worships. Except he's worshiping an angel. (laughs) And the angel actually corrects him and says, hey, don't worship me. I'm just like you. Let's worship God. And you can imagine John is so captivated and blown away. He just wants to worship. And that's the response that we should have to think about this idea of being with Jesus forever. It should cause us to worship. And one day it will be true when he comes back. So that's the first role we see King Jesus fulfill. Here's the second. Jesus will return as King Jesus the warrior. We're about to jump from the picture of Jesus as a sweet and loving groom to the picture of him as a warrior. It's a little bit of whiplash, okay? But hang on. It's going to make sense. Look at chapter 19, verses 11 through 21 at the return of Christ. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. He said, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders. And the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Man, that is something, isn't it? (laughs) And and it really kind of 
flies in the face of how a lot of people picture Jesus. When a lot of people think of Jesus, they, they picture you know, him in the white robe and the purple sash. He's got the long flowing locks like he's in a shampoo commercial. He's holding a lamb, just cuddling. We like that picture of Jesus where he's, he's calm and peaceful and he just loves everybody. And it's true that the Gospels often portray Jesus as gentle and humble and welcoming the little children. That is Jesus. But Revelation 19 is also Jesus. And we have to account for both of these pictures. So, so look at these, some of these details in, in chapter 19. There's a white horse. The rider is called Faithful and True. He's coming to judge and make war. His eyes are like fire. He's got crowns on his head. These are images of, of victory and power. And then we see he's called the Word of God. It's a direct tie back, do you remember, to John's Gospel? John chapter 1 where he said the Word became flesh. And then he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. There's some debate as to exactly whose blood this is. Is this the blood of his enemies? Is this Jesus' own blood? I tend to think it's the blood of Jesus. Remember, that is ultimately how Jesus conquered. It was through his death on the cross, through his own blood. We see also he's surrounded by an army. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth, and he's going to tread the winepress of God's wrath. And on his robe and his thigh is a name. King of kings and Lord of lords. Does this mean that Jesus has a tattoo on his leg? Well, this is one of those details that just really isn't that clear. Maybe this is his leg. Maybe it's the robe on his leg. Regardless, the point is this. Jesus is the final king. And when he gets to the earth, there's an army waiting for him. He defeats them. He throws the antichrist and false prophet into hell, and the birds eat everyone's flesh. Have you guys seen that movie, The Birds? Oh, man, that movie really messed me up. I, I still don't like birds. But that's kind of what I'm thinking here when, when, I, when I see this image. And man, why, why do we have such intense violence and war here? And, and how do we square this image of Jesus the warrior with Jesus the groom? Well, we've got to remember the context. Jesus is not coming back to a world who is happy and excited to see him. There's literally a satanic army waiting to kill him. And he's not coming to judge innocent people and be mean to them. Right? He's coming to enact judgment on evil. This is the Antichrist who's been killing Christians and he's coming to, to save them. So Jesus the warrior, he doesn't just fight against, but he's fighting for. He fights for his people. He fights for God's justice. And he's fighting for the redemption of the world. As uncomfortable as some of these images may be, these are meant to encourage us. Like we have a king and a groom who is not lazy or passive, who just sits by while his people are killed. No, he's going to fight for us and defend us. I think about it this way. I, I, uh, I care about my wife. She's my bride. I told you the commitments we made to one another. So as her husband, if I see someone attempting to harm her, I'm coming for him, right? I might put a sword in my mouth, get a white horse, <laughs> a tattoo on my leg. I may get killed along the way, but I'm coming, okay? That's my bride. That's the idea. Jesus fights for his people, and he will win. He will be victorious over all, and when he returns, he'll be king over the whole world. 
So second, we see King Jesus, the warrior. Here's the third and final role we see Jesus fulfill at his return. King Jesus, the judge. Look with me at chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those, of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with them for a thousand years. Man, if there is a passage that has been debated in Revelation, this is it, okay? There are books upon books written about these six verses, okay? I had to read a bunch of them in school. So obviously we can't get into it all. I would encourage you, if you're interested, to go back and listen to the podcast that Pastor Derek and I recorded on this. We talked about this. But I'll just explain very briefly. This period of time, this thousand years, is what we typically call the millennium. And this is a period of time we saw where two things will happen. Number one, Satan will be bound. And number two, Jesus will reign on the earth. John sees this angel come down from heaven. He binds Satan and throws him into the bottomless pit. Why does he do that? Well, it says so that he can deceive the nations no more. This is a time when Satan will be powerless. He will be unable to attempt or harm people. John also sees the people of God resurrected from the dead, reigning with Jesus. He says this will last for a thousand years. And to be totally honest, that right there. It's about all we know. We can use other passages of the Bible to try to make sense of this, but it's my understanding that once Jesus comes back, there will not be this great judgment immediately. There will not be the new heaven and earth immediately. But first, there will be a period of time, the millennium, where he will set up an earthly kingdom and he will reign with his people. You and I, I believe we will be there in our resurrected bodies. So that begs the question, man, what is this going to be like? It's weird to think about us being there, resurrected bodies with Jesus reigning, and yet there are other people on the earth who aren't following him. How does this work? Look, we don't have all the answers. But we can imagine this will be a time of great peace and joy. Think about being with Jesus to have him as king on earth where we can see him. I mean, every part of our society and world will begin to experience the redeeming power of Jesus. I think it will be similar to, to, to living in the Garden of Eden again. Except not all is perfect just yet. It's not over. There's still one more enemy that Jesus has to eliminate. Look at chapter 19, verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison 
and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So after the millennium, after that thousand-year period of time, Satan's going to be let back out. And he's going to go and gather people on the earth for one last battle. And that right there should tell us all we need to know about the human condition. Despite 1,000 years of Jesus reigning on the earth, despite Satan being locked up, people still don't get it. Jesus is here on the earth and people are still rebelling against him. We see the nations that Satan gathers, they're called Gog and Magog, which are Terrible names. You should never name your kids or dog. But these nations, they refer back to the Old Testament. They're mentioned as the symbolic nations that are hostile to God. And what do they do? They march to the place where Christ and his people are, and before they can even mount an attack, boom, fire comes down, consumes them. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, which we know is hell. And this is important because, as I mentioned before, sometimes we have this idea that Satan is the ruler of hell, that he's going to sit on a throne and torture people, or he's throwing some big party down there. But that's not true. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says that hell was actually created for Satan. He and his demons will suffer worse than anyone in hell, and as the passage tells us, he will be tormented day and night forever. What this teaches us is that Satan and God are not equals. They are not two equal forces struggling throughout history to win some undecided battle. No, from the beginning, God has all authority and power over even Satan. He created him originally to be a good angel, but Satan chose to rebel, and one day, as a result, he will be eliminated. One day that serpent from the garden will be crushed. The lion that prowls around the earth will be caged. And our great enemy will be defeated once and for all. And once that happens, then comes the final judgment. Look at chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. This is the last part. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The final judgment we see here will take place before a great white throne. Scripture seems to indicate that God the Father and Jesus the Son will both have a part in this judgment. The rest of the dead will be resurrected and everyone will stand before the throne. 
We see in this passage two kinds of book, the two kinds of books. The first one lists out everything that we've done. It's like a book of deeds. The other one is called the book of life. It lists out those who have followed Jesus. But hang on, why does it say that we'll be judged based on what we've done? I thought salvation was not about doing good deeds. I thought we saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Well, that's true. It's what the Bible teaches. But the Bible also makes clear that a life of faith is evidenced by works. James tells us faith produces works. In other words, by looking at a list of how you lived your life, it should be evident whether you knew Christ or not. So our works, they do play a part. We also know from Scripture that there are going to be rewards. We as believers will be rewarded for the role we played in the kingdom of God. So they do play a part in judgment. They don't earn or lose our salvation, but they are important. Next, we see that all those who don't have their names written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. All those who rejected Jesus will spend eternity in hell alongside Satan and the false prophet and even death itself. So the final role that Jesus will fulfill is that of judge. He alone will determine who enters eternity with him and who enters the lake of fire. So let me end the message this way this morning. Let's just get real for a second. It's so easy to read this and to see it way off in the distance. Guys, this is, this is reality. This is not fiction. This is real. This day will come sooner than we know where you and I will stand before a holy God in judgment. And that means the most important question we could answer today is this. Are you ready for that day? When the book is opened and you have to give an account for the life that God has given you, what will you say? There are going to be a lot of people on that day who want to plead their case. They will point to the book and how many good things they've done. Say, God, I was a good person. Man, I went to church. I prayed every once in a while. I read my Bible every once in a while. I did good things. I helped people. I gave money to charity. I didn't kill anybody. I'm a good person. And they'll think that they deserve to enter heaven on their own merits. But here's the reality. None of our good deeds outweigh our bad. None of us will enter heaven because we're good people. We're not good enough for heaven. If our lives are weighed on that scale, we will never measure up to the holiness of God. That means there is only one hope for you and me when we stand before God, and that is Jesus. That's it. He is the only shot we got. He is the one thing that will determine your eternity. If you trust in him, you will be saved. But if you reject him, you'll spend eternity in hell. I don't say that lightly. Because I want you to know you can change that today. You can decide that today. You can give your life to Jesus today. 
We've seen he's the groom that loves you so much that he gave up his life for you on the cross. Despite your sin, he is committed to love you and will never leave you forever. He's the warrior that fought death and hell and Satan on our behalf and he rose from the dead to give us eternal life and one day. He will come back. He will save us from all evil and make everything right again. And he's the judge that stands ready to save those who are his, to take their place on judgment day, to plead his blood over them. Listen, King Jesus will return. He will come back. The question is, what will that mean for you? Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning.